The following is an encore presentation of Everything Everywhere Daily. If you're an American, you probably grew up hearing the story of Thanksgiving, how the pilgrims came to America to escape religious persecution to establish a new life. But who actually were these pilgrims? Were they really persecuted? Why did they decide to cross an ocean? And how did they end up where they did? Learn more about the pilgrims and everything that happened before the first Thanksgiving on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To understand the events leading up to the pilgrims crossing the Atlantic on the Mayflower, we have to back up to understand the religious situation in England in the early 17th century. As I've touched on in previous episodes, Henry VIII wants a divorce, the Pope doesn't agree to an annulment, so he outlaws the Catholic Church and establishes the Protestant Church of England with himself at the head. Over time, the Church of England sort of adopted many of the forms and traditions of the Catholic Church, and participation in the Church of England became mandatory. In my episode on the gunpowder plot, I talked about the Catholic response to this and how they weren't too thrilled. However, they weren't the only ones who were unhappy with this arrangement. There were Protestant groups as well who didn't like the mandatory participation in the Church of England. There were many of these groups, and they were generally called separatists or dissenters. There was also religious groups known as Puritans who wished to purify the Church of England of its Catholic elements. Not all Puritans were necessarily separatists. Some remained in the church trying to enact change, and others left. There was one such group known as Brownists, who were both Puritans and Separatists. The rest of this story is all about the Brownists. The Brownists got their name from Robert Brown, with an E, who was a leading dissenter to the Anglican Church. The Brownists were Calvinists and Congregationalists. As for the Calvinist part, I'll leave that to a future episode about the Protestant Reformation. The Congregationalist part simply meant that they thought the churches should be run by local congregations not through a top-down system like the Church of England. The core of the group we would eventually call the Pilgrims were formed in 1605 in Nottinghamshire, England, when they tried to create their own church outside of the Church of England. 
Because they couldn't reconcile themselves with the Church of England, and what they were doing was illegal, they decided to leave England entirely and move to where there was more religious freedom, the Netherlands. In particular, they moved to the city of Leiden during the years 1607 and 1608, and here they found the religious freedom that they were looking for. This is the first wrinkle in the story of the pilgrims. The pilgrims didn't come to America seeking religious freedom because they already had it in the Netherlands. They could freely practice their faith and no one was giving them any trouble about it. They left England for religious freedom, that is true, but it isn't why they crossed the ocean. They were on the bottom rung of society in the Netherlands. They were foreigners who didn't speak the language. They were given the worst jobs and had a hard time getting ahead. Their children were growing up Dutch, yet they very much considered themselves to be English and wanted to continue to do so. They were very poor, and some of the members of their congregation had to return to England as they had run out of money. They had a hard time recruiting new members as their living conditions were so bad. On top of all of this, the political situation in the Netherlands was becoming risky as the Eighty Years' War was still going on, and Spain might turn on their religious freedom. After ten years in Leiden, the idea was raised of moving the community to the New World. They considered moving to Guyana in South America, where the Dutch had a colony. They looked at Virginia, where England already had some settlements. They thought it would be safer with other settlements around, but they could set up a little bit further away so they weren't corrupted by them. They likewise considered some land at the mouth of the Hudson River, a place we now call Manhattan. They ended up getting a charter from the Virginia Corporation to set up a settlement in their territory. They also negotiated with a group of London businessmen called Merchant Adventures, who created a joint stock corporation to fund the venture. Each of the pilgrims would receive one share in the company and be required to work the land for seven years. They would then get the land after seven years, in addition to a share of the company profits thereafter. They were scheduled to sail in 1620. However, most of the community were not ready to go that early as they hadn't gotten their affairs in order. They agreed to send a smaller party there first, made up primarily of younger members of the community, and then others would follow later. The company acquired the use of two ships. One called the Mayflower would transport all the people and most of the supplies. The other, called the Speedwell, was smaller and would be left with the pilgrims in Virginia so it could be used for fishing. The Speedwell never even left England due to taking on water. Members of the congregation sailed from Leiden to Plymouth, England, where they boarded the Mayflower. There were 130 passengers and crew in total. There were 28 crew members and 102 passengers. Only half of the passengers on the ship, including children, were members of the congregation. The rest were all passengers who were going to work for the company and had no religious affiliation with the pilgrims. Here I should note that the pilgrims were not, in fact, pilgrims. They were not on a pilgrimage, and they were not traveling for religious reasons. No one called them pilgrims, and they didn't call themselves pilgrims. What they called themselves were saints, and they called those on the ship that weren't in their congregation strangers. The term pilgrim was once used in a biblical reference in William Bedford's book of Plymouth Plantation, and then it wasn't used again to reference them for 150 years. It began being used at the end of the 18th century in Boston, and then more widely used at the beginning of the 19th century. They were initially known to history as the Brownist Emigration, and it should be noted that half of the passengers on the Mayflower were not even members of their religious group. They set out from Plymouth on September 16, 1620. The voyage was not a good one. They had rough seas and storms, and at one point it got so bad they considered turning back. Almost everyone was seasick. One passenger died en route, and one baby was born. The baby was named Oceanus, Oceanus Hopkins. They did manage to arrive, and land was sighted on November 9th. The problem was, the land they sighted wasn't Virginia. Because it wasn't Virginia, they didn't technically have the authority to establish a settlement there. 
Some of the passengers felt that because they weren't delivered to Virginia, they weren't bound to what they agreed with the company that sponsored their trip. Basically, they figured they could do whatever they wanted. They were in a huge legal limbo because the plan went haywire. So before they got off the ship, the Saints and the Strangers signed an agreement known as the Mayflower Compact. The Mayflower Compact was a very short and very simple document that basically said that they were a society under the authority of the king, and it would enact their own laws that everyone would be subject to. That's it. Once it was signed, they came ashore. They did not come ashore at Plymouth Rock. The entire Plymouth Rock story was first told in 1715, almost a hundred years after they arrived. Also, let me say from first-hand experience that Plymouth Rock is one of the most disappointing tourist attractions you will ever see. It is exceptionally tiny and pretty clearly an 18th century tourist trap. Where they really came ashore was the beach of what is today Provincetown. It was just a scouting party that came ashore. They did eventually settle in Plymouth, and it was the first British settlement outside of Virginia. Because they weren't bound by the governor of Virginia, they also had the first community in the New World that was self-governing. The first winter went horrible. The passengers didn't even disembark from the ship. If they had arrived in Virginia, where there were other settlers, it might have gone much better. Temperatures would have been warmer, and there would have been some food and shelter. Disease broke out on the ship, and it's not quite clear exactly what it was. It could have been pneumonia, scurvy, and or tuberculosis. Disease, malnutrition, and exposure to the elements all took their toll. During the worst part of the winter, there were only six people to tend to everyone else on the ship who was sick. By the time spring arrived, half of the passengers on the Mayflower were dead. Of the original 102, only 53 survived. Half the crew died as well. When spring arrived, they managed to create some shelters and grow some crops with the critical assistance of local natives, and created the kernel of what would become the Plymouth Colony. And, of course, that fall they celebrated the first Thanksgiving, which I have recounted in a previous episode. Today, there are an estimated 10 million Americans and 35 million people around the world who are descendants of the original passengers of the Mayflower. They include multiple U.S. presidents, actors, astronauts, and athletes. They might not have come to the New World to escape religious persecution. They might have landed in the wrong place, and they certainly weren't prepared for what awaited them. But they did certainly make a lasting impact. The executive producer of Everything Everywhere Daily is Charles Daniel. The associate producers are Peter Bennett and Cameron Kiefer. I wanted to give a big thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. Your support helps me put out a new show every day. And if you're interested in Everything Everywhere Daily merchandise, Patreon is currently the only place where it's available. And if you'd like to talk to other listeners of the show and get notified of future episodes and projects, please join my Facebook group or Discord server. Links to everything are in the show notes.